everyone, I'm Meg. And I'm Ray. And, and this, this is, is the Yo Philly podcast. A podcast where we break down the qualities and curiosities that make Philadelphia unique. Join us each week as we explore the city of brotherly love's culture, history, and traditions. Thanks for listening. Yo, Ray. Yo, Meg. Yo, America. Yo, Philly. What's going on? Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3, and this is going to be our historical profile for this season, one I'm pretty excited about. Since this episode will drop shortly after Election Day, we couldn't think of a better person to cover than Octavius Caddo. It's a little weird recording this without knowing the outcome of the election, but no matter who wins, we hope you exercised your right as an American citizen to get out and vote. Yeah, whoever winds up winning, we sincerely hope that they make an effort to bring the country together. It seems the nation feels as divided as ever. I've been hearing a lot of people say, vote as if your life depends on it, which in the year 2020 feels like a slight exaggeration, maybe. However, many Americans are scared and anxious about how the consequences of this election could impact future generations to come. And I think it's fair to say that in the case of Octavius Caddo, he fully understood the meaning of the phrase, vote as if your life depends on it. And we'll tell you all about Caddo's activism and contributions to American society. Of course, it's important to remember that the right to vote wasn't always a right for all American citizens. And we kind of take it for granted today. But women and people of color had to fight, and in some cases, die, for those rights to be truly extended to all Americans. While the name Octavius Caddo might not necessarily be a household name for all, we can almost guarantee that you've seen him before if you spent any time walking around Center City and City Hall recently. Yeah, in full disclosure for me, Octavius Caddo is definitely a new name. But I'm so glad I took the time to get to know him a little better. He's an absolutely fascinating individual. Yeah, I completely agree. I really didn't know much about him until we did really deep research for this. Yeah, and without looking at a comprehensive list, I don't think there's any doubt that Octavius Caddo is one of the most important and influential African-American figures in Philadelphia's history. And in 2017, Philadelphia unveiled the first ever public statue of an African-American figure, and that was Octavius Caddo. And I have seen that statue. Yes, yeah, we both have. I think when it went up, I was kind of like, who is this person? Yeah, and it only took a few years and several passes and strolls by his statue for me to actually take the time to learn who he was. But again, really glad I did. Yeah, it's a long overdue, and I'm really excited to talk about him today. In this episode, we're going to do our best to tell you about Cato's story and why his legacy still rings true to this day. Before we get into his life specifically, we should probably take a little time to set the stage for our listeners. Cato's contributions to American society can't really be fully understood without an appreciation for the context in which he lived. Historians consider the time period he lived through as the first civil rights movement in America. And... When most people hear civil rights movement, you probably think of, you know, that period in the 50s and 60s. You're thinking of Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, you know, presidents JFK and Lyndon B. Johnson. You're thinking of that. Right. But this period, the quote unquote first civil rights movement was actually taking place about a century prior. So Octavius Caddo lived through the 19th century from the years 1839 to 1871. And this was, of course, the era of the Civil War, a huge unrest and divide within the United States, and a time when the nation was nearly fractured beyond all repair. Of course, American history has not been especially kind or humane to black people, and during the 19th century, Americans were forced to decide whether or not America was going to be a nation that allowed and permitted slavery. For example, during this time, you also have policies such as the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which incentivized the kidnapping of African Americans who had escaped from enslavement, even in some states in the North. Yeah, which is just so sad to think about, but something we definitely can't turn a blind eye to. Of course, all of this came to a head during the 1860s when the Civil War finally broke out. 
Some will argue that the Civil War was fought over various economic interests, cultural values, and powers of the federal government. But of course, the issue of slavery is rooted in all three of these points of conflict. It took four years and 620,000 deaths to bring the Civil War to an end, making it the deadliest war in American history, even ahead of World War II. Not like it's a competition or anything. And the nation had actually really been grappling with the issue of slavery long before the Civil War broke out in the 1860s. The state of Pennsylvania had actually passed the Gradual Abolition Act of 1780. Yeah, and this was almost a full century prior to the start of the Civil War. So definitely a big deal. and speaks volumes of the Quaker tradition in Pennsylvania at the time. However, it was by no means a full stop to slavery. This was considered at the time, the first extensive abolition legislation in the Western Hemisphere. The term gradual is quite telling here, as Pennsylvania slaveholders were permitted, unfortunately, to keep the slaves that they had prior to this legislation, so long as they registered them annually. So slavery definitely continued for a period afterwards. This actually included George Washington during his presidency as well. Come on, George. Yeah, no good. Um, so slavery did continue in Pennsylvania for some time after 1780, but it's safe to say that uh, PA was definitely ahead of the curve in terms of abolishing slavery in the United States. And if you're wondering which state was first to abolish slavery, that was in fact Vermont in 1777. So it is important to keep in mind that just because a law is passed doesn't mean that society magically changes overnight or accepts this law or it's just a societal norm, right? We, of course, are still struggling with race relations in this country today in 2020. It's a long time. And consider, during Cato's time, mobs were a real force in Philadelphia, like legit gangster mobs, riots and everything. And these mobs, of course, acted outside of the law for the sake of their own interest, which included political interest and suppressing the vote of African Americans, which included displays of physical intimidation and brute force. Eventually, you have the ratification of the 15th Amendment in 1870, which granted black men the right to vote. Unfortunately, women would have to wait until the early 20th century for the ratification of the 19th Amendment. But if there's one thing we know about American history, it's that progress in this country is slow, with a capital S. And the 19th Amendment definitely wasn't uh, good for everybody, right? It did prohibit the government from using sex as criteria for voting rights, but many, including African-American women, remained disenfranchised. Yeah, not to mention this amendment didn't eliminate state laws that kept black people from voting via poll taxes, property ownership requirements, moral character tests, grandfather clauses, and literacy tests. And this whole kind of state versus federal legislation is kind of this perpetual foe in this journey towards like true activism and equality. And unsurprisingly, many of these laws, including Jim Crow laws, especially prevailed in the South. And it wouldn't be until the 1965 Voting Rights Act that discriminatory voting practices would be outlawed at state and local levels, which finally granted all American citizens the right to vote. Okay, so that's a lot of ground, but hopefully that helps set the stage a little bit for the era of Octavius Caddo. And when we come back, we will accompany you on a historical journey through his remarkable life. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. If you're enjoying the Yo Philly podcast, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. All right, and we're back. Let's take a look at the early years of Octavius Caddo's life. He was born Octavius Valentine Caddo on February 22nd, 1839 in Charleston, South Carolina. His birthday was just six days after Valentine's Day. Hence the middle name, perhaps? That's what I'd like to think <laughs> So to really understand Cato's brilliance in his later life, it's really important that we cover what his family was like, because they were really influential. Octavius was born a free man to mixed-race parents. His family was quite wealthy and prestigious in the Charleston area. 
So keep in mind, at the time of his birth, Charleston was really kind of considered the center of North American slave trade. It's estimated that about 40% of enslaved people entered the country in Charleston. Yeah, how's that for a starting point? Yeah, like, wonderful that you're a free man born to a free family, but you're still in Charleston where all of this is going on. Right. His father was Reverend William T. Cato, who had been born a slave, but sought freedom and eventually became a Presbyterian minister. His mother was Sarah Isabella Kane, who was from another prominent Charleston family. Unfortunately, Sarah would die in childbirth when Cato was only six years old, and his father would eventually go on to remarry. Shortly thereafter, Octavius's father, William, decided to move his family north to Baltimore, Maryland, which at the time was still a slave state. However, Baltimore wasn't necessarily the family's final destination, right? No, in fact. Because, you know, we gotta, we gotta make a tie to Philadelphia eventually here. <laughs> so once the Caddo family was in Baltimore, William really considered relocating farther away to Liberia, actually, as a missionary. Those plans were very, very quickly dashed once there was an arrest warrant out for him. <laughs> Authorities discovered a letter written by William, which they believed would, quote, excite discontent and insurrection among slaves, unquote. Thus, William's missionary license was revoked, and officers were actually sent to Baltimore to arrest William and bring him back to South Carolina. So what did the family decide to do? Get the heck out of there. They fled north of the Mason-Dixon line to Philadelphia by around 1850. Yeah, and just for some additional historical context, while Philadelphia was a major destination for freed slaves, that didn't necessarily mean it was a full-on safe haven for African Americans. Frederick Douglass is even quoted as saying that no northern city was more prejudiced against black people than Philadelphia. Like we mentioned earlier, the city had gradually abolished slavery, starting in 1780, during the Revolutionary War. But it didn't free slaves already in the state. It prohibited future importation of slaves, but didn't free everybody there. Legal slavery wouldn't end in Pennsylvania until 1847, right around the time the Caddo family arrived in Philadelphia. Okay, speaking of the Caddo family in Philadelphia, let's get back to that. William became quite influential and well-known in Philadelphia as the minister of the First African Presbyterian Church. He was an outspoken advocate for emancipation, voting suffrage, and education for African Americans. He regularly met with well-known abolitionists like Frederick Douglass and William Still. This most likely inspired Octavius's mission later in life, being exposed to these kinds of meetings, hearing his father speak about these things openly in public and in the congregation. I can only imagine. But we'll get to that momentarily. Yeah, and Octavius was about 11 years old when his life in Philly began. He was an exceptionally gifted and intellectually curious student. He began his education at the Robert Vox Primary School and then went on to the Lombard Grammar School, which were both segregated schools at the time. By 1854, when Octavius was 15 years old, he became a student at the reputable Institute for Colored Youth, which is known today as Cheney University. The Institute was basically an advanced academic high school that trained students for intellectual careers. It's also considered the first historically black college in the United States. Well, fun fact. Crazy. So the Institute for Colored Youth, or the ICY, was managed by the Society of Friends, who you might recognize as the Quakers. And he likely learned Latin, Greek, geometry, trigonometry as part of a classical education. They were really all about that back then. At ICY, Cato really got his start as an orator. He was involved with scholarly discussions at a young men's instruction society at the school. He actually led this society along with Jacob C. White Jr., who would grow up to be his contemporary as an educator, intellectual, and civil rights activist. Caddo and White would remain friends throughout their lives, even playing baseball together. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get back to Caddo's academic career. Cool. By 1858, Caddo would graduate as valedictorian of his class and return to the ICY one year later to start his teaching career. One of his most notable speeches was given at a commencement ceremony in 1864, which was one year before the Civil War ended, mind you. 
In it, he spoke about the needs of African-American students and the insensitivity of white teachers toward black pupils. He also advocated for political activism in the student body and spoke much of the Civil War, which was well underway at this point, like I mentioned. In 1869, Caddo was elected principal of the Institute for Colored Youth's male department, in addition to continuing his teaching duties. And I guess he was pretty well paid for the time for a teacher in Philadelphia, earning $800 a year. Which, yeah, back then was no small sum to kind of uh, sniff at, right? So not only was Octavius a star scholar, he was also a star athlete. While he was a student at ICY, he played cricket, aka British baseball. I might be, I might be simplifying that a little bit. <laughs> he also played a game called Philadelphia Town Ball, which is kind of a precursor to modern baseball, and also played contemporary baseball in the 19th century. These basically were all field games played by two opposing teams using a bat and ball, and apparently Octavius had a really great knack for it. Just all bat ball games. In 1867, Caddo and his childhood friend, like I mentioned before, Jacob White Jr., formed Philadelphia's second black baseball team, the Philadelphia Pythians. Not quite the Phillies, but I appreciate the P alliteration here. Philadelphia Pythians. It rolls off the tongue nicely. The name actually comes from Pythia, who was the high priestess of the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, aka the Oracle at Delphi, during ancient Grecian times. So you can see a little bit of influence from that classical education <laughs> that they had at ICY for sure. Yeah, and Cato certainly had his hands full as far as his involvement in baseball was concerned. He was a co-manager, captain, and star shortstop for the team. The club was an exclusively African-American league and was highly successful for the time. And they even went undefeated during their debut season. Now, Ray, I know very little about baseball, as you know. How normal is it to be undefeated in a debut season? Well, any season at all, it's it's not normal. Baseball is notoriously a game of failure. <laughs> um, and it's about really just managing and minimizing that failure that makes for good teams. But it's not likely that you get undefeated seasons. And I'm not quite sure how long the season was, but really any undefeated season is just remarkable. Well, there you go. And I, I'm, I mean, I get that like 1860s baseball was probably very different than, you know, 2020 baseball for sure but still impressive very impressive yeah and certainly for the time they were considered uh, by most to be the best black team in the city and perhaps the nation modern day historians call Caddo the jackie robinson of his day not only for his talent on the field but for his efforts to integrate baseball off the field and other forms of activism as well there may not be a single baseball player more universally renowned and respected than jackie robinson so that, of course, speaks volumes for Octavius Caddo. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, Jackie Robinson was the first African-American baseball player to play in the major leagues. And that unfortunately didn't happen until 1947. Yeah, so quite some time, like 80 years after Caddo was playing baseball. But in 1867, Caddo actually petitioned the National Association of Baseball Players to allow the Pythians into the league. There were 266 applications, and the Pythians were the only black team, and they were the only team denied admission. Had Cato been successful, he would have potentially desegregated the sport, and unfortunately, like Ray just said, it would take 80 more years before that would happen. So we can see here that baseball wasn't only a pastime and a hobby for Cato, but it was also an important vehicle for him in his quest for civil rights. All right. Before we get into more of Octavius's activism, I think it's time for a quick break. When we come back, we'll take a closer look at Caddo's role in America's first civil rights movement and the remainder of his fascinating life. Yep, be back in a bit. Hi, everyone. If you want to get in touch with us and stay up to date with all the latest podcast news, future episodes, and other updates, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at YoPhillyPod or email us at YoPhillyPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. All right, we're back. 
One thing that we haven't really addressed yet, and you may be wondering, what was Octavius's stance and role in the Civil War? We've mentioned it a few times. What was Octavius's role in it? Just as a reminder, the Civil War took place between 1861 and 1865, so that would have put Cato in his early to mid-20s. In 1863, the Confederate Army invaded Pennsylvania, culminating in the infamous Battle of Gettysburg, which was the northernmost battle of the Civil War. So Gettysburg obviously led to quite a bit of panic in Pennsylvania, understandably, and emergency calls for troops were put out across the entire state. Cato would, of course, answer this call while recruiting dozens of African-American troops to form one of the first volunteer companies. Cato presented this company at the state capital of Pennsylvania in Harrisburg to Major General Darius Couch. This guy actually turned Octavius's help down. And mind you, this was, of course, when the Union needed all the help it could get. Like, seriously, there's a state of emergency in Pennsylvania. Yeah, and Major General Couch said only the service of white volunteers would do, and he cited a few laws that African-American troops were not allowed to serve on limited volunteer terms. And it's really a a baffling display of racism, to say the least. Uh, Turning troops away during the state of emergency because of skin color, that's also considering that the central conflict of the Civil War was really slavery itself. Yeah, so just goes to show you that even though, you know, the North, the Union, people were free, this was not something that societally everybody was on board with. But remarkably, this did not deter Cato's enthusiasm and support for the Union cause. This guy's incredible. (laughs) He returns to Philadelphia, being turned away by Major General Couch, and he then decides to throw in his efforts to help recruitment and support for black enlistment in the army. He helped raise 11 regiments of troops in Pennsylvania, who were then trained at Camp William Penn before being sent to the war front. Octavius would also eventually serve on the Pennsylvania National Guard. However, there's no historical evidence to suggest he ever saw active combat. And just for context, other notable African-American regiments at the time were the 1st Kansas Colored Volunteer Infantry Regiment, which was active from August of 1862 to December of 1864, and the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment, which operated between March of 1863 and August of 1865. The end of the Civil War brings about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which abolished slavery granted citizenship to all people born in the U.S., black or otherwise, and gives black men the right to vote. Caddo and his contemporaries are fighting for equal rights throughout the city, and change is happening there too. And even while serving in the U.S. military at varying capacities, Caddo would continue to develop and practice his skills as an activist, orator, and intellectual. Octavius was involved in numerous civic, literary, patriotic, and political groups in Philadelphia and beyond. For one of these, he was a co-founder of the Equal Rights League. In October of 1864, Cato traveled to Syracuse, New York, and I swear this podcast is all just Ben Franklin and Syracuse connections. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) So he traveled to Syracuse, New York, with hundreds of other black people from the North and South to create this organization, the Equal Rights League. It was the first national group devoted to promoting black equality in the United States. The Equal Rights League rallied for voting suffrage, political causes, streetcar desegregation, and advanced equal education for African-American students by African-American teachers. Cato was later elected secretary of the organization's Pennsylvania chapter. And this is just a small sample of what he was doing in his free time, right? Because he was also involved with many other organizations, including the Philadelphia Library Company, the Fourth Ward Black Political Club, the Franklin Institute, and the Union League Association. So this guy was everywhere. As if he weren't busy enough, Octavius Caddo also helped lead the movement to desegregate public transit in Philadelphia. After the Civil War, he led this protest movement resulting in the 1867 Pennsylvania law that prohibited racially segregated public transportation. And just to give you an idea, we're not talking obviously about like the subway system of today. We're talking about horse-drawn streetcars. Caddo, along with his fiancée, Caroline LeCount, who was also another ICY graduate, they really wanted to make public transit accessible for everyone. 
They both teamed up with other prominent activists like Lucretia Mott and Frederick Douglass to make this happen. And during this time, Caddo was living in the South Street area, so access to public transit was really important for so many people. Yeah, and you can't really have equality in a democratic society if everyone doesn't have equal access to transportation. Yeah, it's just like, come on, people. (laughs) (laughs) And this desire to desegregate various forms of public transportation was reinforced about what Caddo witnessed during the Civil War. He saw many black family members and friends struggle to find ways to visit injured soldiers because they didn't simply have access to forms of transportation. And of course, this desire for desegregating public transportation led to protests. And many historians believe that Caddo led these protest efforts for black people in which they boarded streetcars en masse as sort of this display of civil disobedience and peaceful demonstration. And after 1867, when laws were passed that prevented discrimination for public transportation, Caddo's fiancée, Caroline LeCount, tried to board a streetcar, but she was denied by the driver. She was able to get a court order to penalize the driver, who was fined a hefty fee. And this was really seen as a victory for the movement and really helped the law stick, but it certainly sparked more tension between black and white people in Philadelphia. And sadly, this issue over desegregating public transportation really remains an issue through to the civil rights movement we knew in the 20th century during the 50s and 60s and the famous incident involving Rosa Parks. Yeah, this nearly happens a century earlier. You can just kind of see the echo of this movement in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. So really setting a precursor to this for sure. So now we'll fast forward three years later to 1870, when the 15th Amendment was passed, which was obviously a huge victory for African Americans after the Civil War. But like we said, just because a law is passed does not mean that society follows suit and suddenly, you know, everything changes. Tensions really did remain high, and the black vote was seen as a threat to the white way of life, particularly by poor white men and immigrants, especially Irish immigrants here in Philadelphia, who saw freed black people as competition for jobs and their vote as a threat to their way of life. So why did so many white people see this as a threat? Well, the African-American population in Philadelphia at this time was 11%. Think about percentage points for polls you know, for a vote. 11% is a significant amount, and that can really have influence over voting outcomes. Yeah, and that 11% far exceeds, you know, the typical margin of error for most elections. So it's enough to swing. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, popular sentiment at the time among white people was the notion of black people somehow being inferior. But of course, racism had been rooted in American society for centuries. It's not something that was going away anytime soon. It was rooted in the notion that black people were somehow inferior, whether morally, intellectually, or otherwise. And it prevailed for quite some time following the conclusion of the Civil War. And so... Election Day eventually rolls around in Philadelphia on October 10th, 1871. There's a lot of fighting going on in the city between angry white Democrats and black men who are mostly aligned with the Republican Party. Just a reminder and a bit of historical context here, the Republican and Democratic parties of the mid-19th century were vastly different than what they are today. So during this time, many African-Americans registered as Republicans, which was the same political party as the quote-unquote great emancipator Abraham Lincoln. So things were a little bit different. But we know in October of 1871, riots were being organized by white mobs in the city to really deter African-American men from heading to the polls. One of these mob organizers was ward boss and Democratic political operative William Bull McMullen. McMullen had been planning riots in the Fifth Ward on Election Day with members of the Moyamensing Fire Company. This district was originally located from Chestnut Street to South Street between the Delaware River and 7th Street. Yep, in this area, the Fifth Ward was extremely diverse. On the one hand, you have this influx of freed African Americans, and on the other, you have white immigrants from Europe. And this area eventually became known as the Bloody Fifth Ward due to its history of violence in the 19th and 20th centuries between various racial and ethnic groups. So this mob organizer and ward boss, McMullen, and his men planned to create a lot of chaos and terror on election day to deter the black vote. They resorted to physical violence, beating people up, and forcibly removing them from polling lines. 
So this isn't the kind of voter suppression we know today. This is like... Like physical. This is like terrorism. Yeah, absolutely. And just to help paint a picture for us, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported on the violence during that day, stating that paving stones and brickbats were flying in all directions. These were serious riots. Despite all of this, Octavius Caddo, who was only 32 at the time, mind you, continues his fight for the black vote. He helped lead a registration drive for first-time black male voters right up to Election Day. Yeah, and seeing the violence that broke out at the polls on October 10th, Caddo was notably outraged by this blatant voter suppression and threats to black lives. Concerned for the welfare of his community, he and his colleagues at the ICY decided to shut down early that day in order to help keep people off of the streets. And just to let you know, police were aware of these riots and were not intervening at all. And this led Caddo to eventually seek out help from the mayor. He was really trying to get the city to help stop the riots. So Caddo met with Mayor Daniel Fox, begging him to do something to stop the mobs. Yet Fox pretty much just brushed him off. Caddo was told that he should focus on protecting himself. Yeah, and that's a really tough thing to imagine because... Really, the right to vote is one of the central duties of American citizens, and that right should be protected for all. And that's how we know it as today. But the idea that black men were in fear of going out to vote and needing protection and being denied it by their government is really troubling to think about. Yeah, it's just incredibly sad and just speaks, again, volumes to the idea that just because legislation is passed doesn't mean that society catches up with it. Yeah, and so unfortunately, Caddo was forced to become the good guy with the gun. Yeah, I mean, hey, he's a citizen now, right? Second Amendment applies to him. Right. So he needed a little cash to go buy a gun, and he went over to Philadelphia's branch of the Freedmen's Bank, which was at 9th and Lombard, and withdrew $20. He then met up with a friend and headed over to a pawn shop on Walnut Street and purchased an unloaded revolver there. And after purchasing his firearm, he began his journey back to his house, which was located at 8th and South Streets. Just 30 minutes later, he passes two white men on the street, and they were Edward Reddy Denver and Frank Kelly, both Democratic Party operatives during those days' riots. According to historical accounts, they exchanged no words, but Kelly pulled out his pistol and fired shots at Caddo. Caddo was wounded from this exchange and sought safety behind a streetcar. And mind you, he only had an unloaded pistol for protection. Kelly eventually caught up to him and shot him, delivering the fatal shots at close range. Caddo, unfortunately, then died in the arms of an approaching police officer. And after the shooting, Kelly, who was the gunman, fled Philadelphia to hide. Yes, and unfortunately, Caddo's story was not alone. He was one of six black men shot one of two killed that day, and there were undoubtedly dozens if not hundreds of African-American men who were prevented from voting or were injured in these riots. After the shooting, Caddo's body was taken to the Institute for Colored Youth, where many local residents paid their respects that evening, including his colleagues and students. His funeral procession was one of the largest in Philadelphia, viewed by more than 5,000 people, People came from across the country, including Washington, D.C., New York, and Mississippi, to pay their respects. The procession traveled down Broad Street to Lebanon Cemetery, which was one of only two private African-American cemeteries in Philadelphia at the time. Lebanon Cemetery would then later close in the early 20th century. Caddo's remains were then moved to Eden Cemetery in Collingdale, Pennsylvania, where he still lies today. And what became of Frank Kelly, who was the man who killed Caddo? After he fled Philadelphia, he was found six years later hiding in Chicago. Authorities then extradited him back to Philadelphia to stand trial for Caddo's murder in 1877. During the trial, six eyewitnesses, three black and three white, would identify Kelly as the shooter under oath in a courtroom. He was identified. And despite all of this, Kelly was acquitted by an all-white jury, and there was no justice ultimately for Octavius Caddo. How in the world do you have six eyewitnesses who positively ID the murderer, and he just gets off scot-free? Just crazy. It's an especially tough pill to swallow knowing that Caddo wasn't inherently a violent person, right? He was just seeking equality for all people. Yeah, his death was just a complete tragedy and the long list of those who lost their lives fighting for equal rights. 
Yeah, and in terms of Caddo's legacy today, after his death, his name has been memorialized at various schools and organizations, including the O.V. Caddo Lodge here in Philadelphia. And his name has also been honored uh, in the designation of various awards. The Pennsylvania National Guard, for which Caddo served during the Civil War, has a major Octavius V. Caddo medal, recognizing members who distinguish themselves as leaders through community support and public service. There is also an Octavius Caddo scholarship at the Community College of Philadelphia. And the Philadelphia Pythians, the baseball club that Caddo helped form, continued to play after his death, eventually becoming charter members of the National Colored Baseball League, which would be the precursor to the Negro Leagues of the 20th century. Caddo was also inducted into the Negro League Baseball Hall of Fame. And while I never learned about Caddo in history class and for some time his name might have faded from public recognition, recently the significance of his contributions and life have been recognized, especially in light of the recent racial unrest and calls for justice and equality. In 2016, Temple University Press actually published a biography of his life called Tasting Freedom, Octavius Caddo and the Battle for Equality in Civil War America. And also notably, in 2017, a 12-foot bronze statue of Caddo was unveiled at City Hall in Philly. And we talked about this a little in our introduction today. The statue is called Quest for Parity, and it was dedicated 140 years after his death. And this statue was commissioned by the Octavius V. Caddo Memorial Fund. And that's when I first met Mr. Caddo. Yes, me, me as well. <laughs> and of the city's 1,700 public statues, this monument was the first in Philadelphia to honor an individual African American. Which, you know, is incredible to think about. 1,700 statues in the city, and this is the first one in 2017 to recognize this guy. Yeah, it's kind of baffling to think about. Yeah, for sure. But obviously, this man led an incredible life. I cannot believe he did all that he did in his short 32 years on this earth. Yeah, and sort of to wrap all this up, I think one of my bigger takeaways from this episode is that there's so much more to history than what you learned in history class. Octavius Caddo was not somebody I ever knew existed until researching this episode, and he gave such significant contributions to the quest for equal rights in the United States, and it was so important to the city of Philadelphia in particular, and I'm so glad that we got the opportunity to share his life with you today. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Ray. He's somebody that I never, never would have learned about. And had it not been for one day wandering around City Hall and passing by his statue, would have ever thought to research or to look up. And it was really just that one day just looking at like, who is this guy? Hang on a second. There's this new statue here. What? Um, so I'm really thankful. You know, public art is important. It can help. Yeah, and I think it also speaks to the significance of statues in general, right? Like who we choose to memorialize and who we don't. And I'd say that people like Octavius Caddo were certainly deserving of this kind of public recognition. Yeah, absolutely. No truer words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and on that note, I think that's about all we have for you today about Octavius Caddo. But as always, there's more in the show notes if you want to explore further about his life, legacy, and contributions to America's first civil rights movement. And I think all that's left now is a little John. Yeah. Coming up after the break, John of the Week. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. If you're enjoying the Yo Philly podcast, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. And we're back. All right. It's that time again, John of the Week. And, you know, we usually keep things a bit more on the lighter side for John's segments. But we thought this week would be a good chance to cover something a little bit more substantial and kind of topically related, considering we just came off of uh, Caddo's statue in Philadelphia. So this week, we're going to focus on the tearing down of the Frank Rizzo statue. Again, this sort of contrasts against the creation of the Octavius V. Caddo statue at City Hall back in 2017, 
Rizzo's statue was controversial for decades and was actually located in the same general area outside of the municipal services building and was taken down actually earlier this year in 2020 amidst protests sparked by the killing of George Floyd. Both statues are actually made of similar material and in a similar style in bronze, and like Caddo's statue, Rizzo's is not surprisingly larger than normal human scale. The statue was about 10 feet tall. Yeah, and for those of you that don't know, Frank Rizzo was once the mayor of Philadelphia, and he was a controversial mayor at that. Uh, Rizzo was the mayor of Philadelphia between 1972 and 1980, and the types of policies that he pursued while he was mayor were certainly problematic. For example, he was a strong opponent of the desegregation of public schools, and he prevented the construction of public housing in majority white neighborhoods specifically. And while running for his third term as mayor, he actually encouraged his supporters to, quote, vote white. So... Not the... A little bit, yeah, not great. Not great. And prior to becoming mayor of Philadelphia, Rizzo was also the police commissioner of Philadelphia. This was from 1968 to 1971. And during his tenure, the Philadelphia Police Department was known for patterns of police brutality, intimidation, coercion in some cases, and this was all geared especially towards people of color. While Rizzo was mayor, the United States Justice Department even filed a lawsuit against Philly's police department, saying that its use of excessive force, quote, shocked the conscience. Yeah, so very controversial, as you can see. Rizzo was very much in the same vein as other tough-on-crime politicians that ran roughshod through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, which, of course, disproportionately impacted poor communities and communities of color. As a matter of fact, shockingly, finally, in 2020, Philadelphia has decided to put an end to stop-and-frisk policies, that, and that was actually on the ballot this year. Stop and frisk was one of the divisive policies championed by Rizzo during his tenure as mayor of Philadelphia. And Rizzo also sort of had a populist and Trumpian character to him, and no surprise he had conflicts with various reporters and media members over the years. You know, crumbum example. This is one of the best things I can think of, which, you know, at first glance, especially for us as outsiders, was kind of like funny and laughable, but actually is really horrendous. No, I mean, it, it is funny. Like, I mean, if you're curious, just go go to YouTube and search like Frank Rizzo Crumbum. So this was after his tenure as mayor, I believe. And reporters were trying to ask him a series of questions about whatever the heck he was up to at the time. And he was very hostile towards them. And I think there was even some physical altercations, if I remember correctly. Yeah, there were. And uh, he, you know, would just berate these reporters and call them a whole range of, of different names and insults that certainly aren't palatable today. And one of the ones he threw out was, was Crumbum. And that just kind of stuck to his image. Yeah, for sure. It's It's actually like... Especially me having, like, a news background being, you know, I can't imagine being those reporters, like, trying to ask this guy about stuff and just feeling, like, physically confronted and just being verbally accosted. It's just, it's wild. Well, Definitely and, look it up. And, like, physically challenged by him. Yeah, yeah. Like, you're trying to do your job as a reporter, and he's like, I want to fight you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just so nuts. So, understandably... Rizzo being memorialized in statue form, definitely kind of a symbol of oppression and brutality. Like, understandable that people were not super thrilled about this. You know, I, I think for the most part, putting up a statue of Frank Rizzo, it almost reminds me of, like, a lot of the credit that Rudy Giuliani gets for New York City of, like, you know, cleaning the city up and... You know, the means by which it was achieved was immoral in a lot of ways and certainly unconstitutional and, you know, racist and just messy. Problematic. Yeah. To say the least. His statue was erected in December of 1998 and was publicly unveiled in January of 1999. And the statue was placed on the steps outside of the Municipal Services Building, which is right by City Hall, like Meg said earlier. 
even though the statue was officially unveiled, there had been a lot of heated debate over its creation and its placement. Yeah, and speaking to statues, you know, historian Timothy Lombardo, who's actually originally from Northeast Philly, he's now a professor of history at the University of South Alabama. So Lombardo actually authored the book Blue Collar Conservatism, Frank Rizzo's Philadelphia and Populist Politics. He had this to say regarding Frank Rizzo's statue, quote, I live and teach in the South now, so I mostly asked about Confederate statues. It comes down to what statues do. No one learns history from a statue. What you learn from a statue is respect and reverence. The question for the present is, are the people these statues are honoring worthy of respect and reverence? And in the, in the specific case of Frank Rizzo, I'd say the answer to that is probably no. And given all the wonderful things we discussed earlier in this episode about Octavius Caddo, if I was given the choice between who is more deserving of having a statue in the middle of Philadelphia on display, Rizzo or Caddo, I don't think there's any dispute that it should be someone like Caddo. Yeah, it's hands down Caddo. <laughs> yeah, you know, when you talk about respect and reverence, I don't think there's any comparison. No, definitely not. And so Rizzo's statue, like we said, it didn't go up all that long ago. And throughout its history, uh, there have been just so many calls to remove this statue. And it's always been this source of tension within the city. And everyone just kind of knows about it. It's like, oh, Rizzo's statue got defaced again. And the calls to remove it have grown exponentially uh, following the verdict of the Trayvon Martin case back in 2013. And of course, more recently, with all civil unrest going on, this this just has not stopped. Yeah, and by 2016, there was an online petition to remove the statue that was circulating by the Philadelphia Coalition for Real Justice. 2017 came around and the city actually voted to remove the statue, but there was a $200,000 cost estimated to tear it down, and Mayor Jim Kenney was like, we've got more important things going on, we're going to delay this. Like, So, you know, for really three years, the statue's been in limbo, but it was still definitely a target. The city finally decided, okay, 2021, we're going to remove it, but you know how this year played out. Yeah, 2020 has been unlike any other, it seems. Yeah, and so what this ultimately amounts to is given that Rizzo is such a controversial figure and he has this prominent statue, that anytime something relating to social injustice or civil unrest happens, he's the primary target. And of course, we all are well aware of how 2020 has played out. And the wide displays of anything ranging from peaceful protests to riots, like, people are just fed up with social and racial injustice in this country. And in Philly in particular, Rizzo is where all that was really directed towards. You know, there's all these massive demonstrations going on throughout Philadelphia and other major cities throughout the country. And the world, really. Yeah, yeah, true. And while these protests were going on, I mean, people were bringing all the ammunition <laughs> towards this statue. I think I saw pictures of people painting the words pig on it. They tried to set it on fire. People even tried to, like, lasso it and pull it down with ropes. But this is like a big, heavy bronze statue. I mean, you're not going to move this thing. I think it's, like, anchored to yeah. the ground. Yeah. The city ultimately decided to take the statue down in the early hours of June 3rd. And the Rizzo statue is currently in storage, where it will remain until further notice. But I don't think it's coming out anytime soon. I would be surprised if it did. Yeah. In addition to the controversy surrounding Rizzo's statue, his likeness has also been portrayed in other areas of the city. Basically, coinciding with the removal of Rizzo's statue, Mural Arts Philadelphia painted over a large mural of Frank Rizzo in Philly's Italian Market neighborhood. We actually have an episode all about Mural Arts program from our first season. They do amazing, amazing work. But in regard to this Rizzo mural, Mural Arts had this to say, quote, we know that the removal of this mural does not erase painful memories, and we are deeply apologetic for the amount of grief it has caused. 
We believe this is a step in the right direction and hope to aid in the healing of our city through the power of thoughtful and inclusive public art, unquote. All right, and I think that's a wrap for this episode's John of the Week. Like we were saying, it's definitely not as fun and light as these Johns usually are, but this Frank Rizzo statue was a really big deal this year, and I think going through the election season this year, and also just the way 2020 has gone, it's involved people asking a lot of like really difficult and introspective questions, both about the way our society is now, where it's been, and where we'd like it to go. And for me, I think it's so interesting that, like, on the one hand, you see a statue of this really remarkable and revered man like Octavius Caddo, and it can lead us and inspire us to research him and find out all this, like, amazing stuff about this guy that I'd, like, never heard yeah. or learned about before. Yeah. And then, on the other hand, you have statues of people like Frank Rizzo, whose statue, like, instead leads to these, like, painful present reminders of racism and controversy and social turmoil and all this just messy stuff. Yeah, it's it's just remarkable. And even just looking at like how public art and memorials, you know, on a larger scale, we've seen this throughout the country with, you know, the reckoning of Confederate statues in the South. We've seen it across the world this year where statues of colonizers and slave owners have tumbled it's really kind of a true awakening moment, which is long, long, long overdue. But Ray, like you just said, these things have power. They have meaning beyond what people think they do. And to see a statue be torn down or put up can be a very powerful thing. So thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of the Yo Philly podcast. If you have anything you'd like to share, any thoughts or feedbacks, maybe things we missed, please, please, please be sure to get in touch with us. We love hearing from you guys. We hope this episode gave you some renewed appreciation for all of our civic duties as Americans, exercising your right to vote. So I think that's it for now. Yeah, I think that's a wrap. And uh, we'll catch you guys next week. Peace. The Yo Philly Podcast is an original production of MSOVA Studios. Be sure to follow at Yo Philly Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all the latest podcast news and developments. You can also email the show directly at yophillypod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.